You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Thank you for coming. Those of you that are here in person, you are the best, true North Country folks. If you are not here in person, we won't judge you, or maybe just a little bit, but we're glad you're joining us online. Um, before I go any further, we just want to take a moment to recognize Kayla Kesner is heading back to Uganda. She's giving me a, a, a grimace smile right now. Um, but we're just going to have you stand where you're at. We're not going to make you come all the way up here, Kayla. If we could just gather on Kayla, maybe a few folks around here lay hands on her. She's heading back to Uganda um, for a next stint. And let's just pray over her as she lives there, of course, and does a lot of work with um, the things that we do in Uganda. So, Father, we just thank you for Kayla. God, we ask right now just for your blessing over her life, God, as she travels back across the world. Father, we ask just really for um, just a smooth way, God. And we even pray for this next season for her, God, that there would just be open doors, there'd be clear paths and clear steps. And, God, we ask for your favor and blessing over her in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We love you, Kayla. Um, all right. Silence always makes a moment, doesn't it? Sorry, I have to. I breathe really loudly when I'm trying to exhale my anxiety <laughs> and just my internal, I don't know, my kids are always like, what is wrong with you? Because I'll literally at home just be like, Ugh. anybody ever else do that? Doesn't this help? Makes me feel better at least. If it doesn't make you feel, sometimes my kids are like, what do we do? I'm like, nothing. I'm just, you know, <laughs> trying to get rid of whatever's on the inside. Um, you know, so this morning I want to speak with you about a message that's not necessarily cozy feeling, <laughs> but necessary. And uh, a lot of you guys know what's going on just with my wife and I. Um, if you've been around the church in the last few months, we shared that we were pregnant. And last week, um, we suffered a miscarriage. And so it's pretty tough. I'm very, very emotional, just being real. But in the midst of this, it causes me to always look really, really deeply. And I'm sure that all of us have faced these moments in our lives where we're just like, something shocks us, right? Right now, the White family and what's going on with Josh and the accident that he was in. And we're all praying for him as, I mean, honestly, is miraculous just the shape he's in for being hit with a, a truck head on. And so you have moments that blindside you. And there's always a choice in those moments. What do you do with this? How does this reconcile in your life, in your beliefs, in your thinking, maybe your theology? How does this reconcile in what you've been praying for or hoping for? How do you reconcile things that happen in life when, when you get prophetic words that almost say the exact opposite? And so there's always this kind of tension that happens. And the reality is if you're a Christian, you will face this if you haven't already. I can guarantee it. Unfortunately, because Jesus says it. Matthew 16, he literally says, you will have many trials and tribulations in this world, but take heart. 
I, I know we read those things and it's like, oh, that's nice. But then when we get to these kinds of moments where something hits us hard or blindsides us hard, it, it, sometimes those words don't feel like enough. Yet Jesus did a really good job of warning us that life wasn't going to be easy. In fact, he did, he did it very often to his disciples. I, I always find it funny, right, when Jesus gets crucified on the cross and he dies and you even see Peter cursing Jesus' name and then they just kind of go back to the life they once lived before. And, and what's funny is if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus told his disciples he was going to die and be raised from the dead over a half a dozen times before it happened. And yet, even when it happened, what, what took place? They were discouraged. They were disillusioned. They lost sight of it. Even when Jesus sometimes tells us up front, like, hey, guess what? Life isn't going to be all roses and cake. And then when it isn't, we're like, what the heck? Maybe you're not like that. Maybe it's just me. And so there's this struggle that takes place, this tension that takes place. And when we face these things, we have to go deep in our hearts and deep in our understanding. And really what I would say is this, deep in our knowing of God. You know, as you walk into our church, one of the first things we hope you see is that big giant thing on the wall right at the other end of the lobby. And it says, know God, love one another, make disciples. As you come down our hallway, it says the same thing on those billboards. Know God, love one another, make disciples. And, you know, we don't, we don't just say that in a sense flippantly. And we say it a lot. And so sometimes when you say something a lot, it can just become so familiar that you don't even notice it or see it anymore or even think about it. But the reality is knowing God is our first endeavor. In your notes, I have John 17, 3. And this is actually the scripture that we pulled this, you know, when we were talking about the language for our church and what we, how we wanted to kind of concisely say, why do we exist and what are we here for? And, you know, I hear a lot of churches, they say, love God, right? And you hear even Jesus, he boils down the two main commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Well, I couldn't get off this idea of knowing him. And I love this one scripture, John 17, verse 3. It says this, and this is the way to have eternal Life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. This is Jesus saying this, just so you know. This is the way to have eternal life, to know you. He's talking to his father, right? This is the prayer of Jesus near the end of his ministry time in John 17 is extremely important in our lives to read, but he's talking to his father and he says, the way to eternal life is to know God. And when we look at that idea of know, we know it, it, it's not just this idea of about, but it's actually an intimate knowledge of him. It actually is more in the lines of an experiential knowledge. You know, we can easily in, in our world today know a lot of things about a lot of people and never have met them or experienced them in any way. 
Social media makes the world really small for us in that way. We can easily just learn about famous people and, and politicians on the other side of the world. And we, we almost think we begin to know them because we see some sort of snippets on Facebook or Instagram or online or in the news. But the reality is we have this little glimpse into the life of someone, but we can't experientially know them unless we've been with them. This is the same that's true about God. And when Jesus is making this prayer to his father, he's praying for us. He's praying for humanity. And he's saying, he's praying that we would know God experientially, that he would actually be close in our lives. And I find that when life gets hard, when things blindside you, it's a true test of how well you know someone. The same is true in our, our regular relationships with people, right? Sometimes we do things that hurt each other, right? And when you know someone really well and you know their heart and you've experienced their heart and you've been close to them, it's easier for you to shrug it off and go, well, that was, maybe I didn't understand why this happened or why they said this, and you just move on. This is honestly the way our marriage is, my, my wife and I, there's these places where we're not perfect humans, and so there's these times where we hurt each other's feelings, or maybe I, you know, just short and tired, and I'm frustrated about something, I say something, and, and she shrugs it off, and the same vice versa, we shrug it off, because at the end of the day, I know my wife's heart, and she knows mine. And so you can get over offense really easily, because you've seen someone's heart deeply, but when life blindsides you, it's a real measurement of how well do you know Jesus. And so honestly, these last couple weeks, I'm like, oh, I guess we'll see how well I know Jesus. And there's absolutely the side where there's just confusion that things go a certain way in life. And you're like, what the heck? I don't get this. But at the end of the day, when, when people have asked you, and almost all of you have asked me, how are you doing? I usually just say, okay, right now because I'm just okay. <laughs> but the truth is, I, I had a good friend of mine from Portland call me, and, you know, that I've just been close with, and he said, can I just ask you, what's the hardest thing you're going through right now with this whole, he's not even talking about the, he wasn't talking about, he knew the circumstances, but he said, internally, what's going on in you? And I said, I don't, I don't know if I could pinpoint it easy. And he said, well, let me ask you this one. Do you, do you know Jesus is still good? And you know what? I said, I do know that. I do know that. And he said, well, then everything else is going to be fine. And I realized the simplicity of that. Now, there was a time in my life I wasn't sure. And there's probably been times in your life you're not sure. Is God really good? And especially when life blindsides you or things go awry or things are hard, it's easy to start to think God isn't as good as some people might say he is. And then it's easy for us to list all of these reasons why. I've got a long list. I don't know about you. But I could compile this list of reasons. And actually I was in our staff meeting on Tuesday and I was really just in and out of the office, and I knew, my gosh, you know, the world goes on, even if your world doesn't feel like it is, right? <laughs> so I had to come in, and we had to get some things done. And, but I honestly, on Tuesday morning, I wasn't really in a great place. I was still just 
in a moment of struggling and hard, and we actually were in the hospital the next day just because things were complicated. And, and uh, our staff, of course, got into this kind of discussion about all the things that are happening and the difficulty and keeping our eyes on Jesus. And in some ways, I was kind of like, I don't want to hear this right now. Anybody else ever been there? got the person that's immediately like gung-ho, wants to tell you all about how good Jesus is, and you're like, I'm just not there yet. And I really probably wasn't there, and I didn't say much. And Bruce, Bruce was in the meeting, and, and he literally said to me, he said a bunch of times to us, there's a simple thing to get through this, and it's trust Jesus. And I realized that actually if we want to know God well, if we want our lives to actually have an experienced knowledge of Jesus, that has to boil down to this baseline of trusting him. Actually, I, this last year I spoke a few different messages that I would almost say were some serious core messages for me personally. One of them I talked about trust. I talked about joy. I talked about the confessions we make with our mouth, and I think about all these things that even I've spoken on this year that I felt were for us as a church, but they were for me. And I, I got to these last two weeks, and I realized, am I actually going to be what I say? Am I going to believe what I teach? Am I actually going to act in the way that Jesus calls us to act, even when it doesn't make sense? And so I have to make a choice. And, and all of us get faced with this. And so there's this idea that it's easy for us to make a list where it's hard to get over. But if we want to know God experientially, it means that we actually have to put our trust in him. And so the rest of my message today, I want to say that I think there's maybe a couple of big things in our world that could easily cause us to have a block from really knowing God. And one of the biggest ones is offense. And I'm not just meaning offense with each other, though that can be a problem. Offense with each other, especially when we wear the label Christian or Christ follower, can easily be a block to knowing God. But truthfully, a lot of us just deal with offense with God himself. We're offended in a way at things that have happened or things that he's allowed or maybe things we believe he's even done and we don't know how to get over that offense and what it does is even if we don't run away from Christianity or maybe we run away from church, we just have this really big arm's length relationship where we keep God to a certain extent close, not close to us because we don't really trust him. And offense actually becomes this divide between us and God. It keeps us from really knowing God, from actually experiencing him. So I want to read this story in Matthew 11 today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Matthew 11, this story picks up with John the Baptist. And so I'll just give you a little background to know where we're at in the story of Jesus' life. So... You've got Jesus, oh, I almost fell off. Um, you've got Jesus, and, you know, he started his ministry, and we see in Matthew 9 this moment, or actually back further than that, this moment where um, 
John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus, right? There's this recognition moment. So John the Baptist was this one who was prophesied about. It said he would make a way for the Messiah. And you've got John the Baptist out there in the wilderness, and he's preaching that the kingdom of heaven's coming, and he's preaching to this baptism of repentance. And, and Jesus comes to visit him one day. And, and in that moment, it seems like John the Baptist truly knows he's the Messiah. And he actually declares it to everyone. He says, here he is, the one, the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah. And this incredible scene takes place with John the Baptist, right, where, where Jesus comes to him and says, I need to be baptized by you. And John the Baptist is like, well, why am I baptizing you? You're the Messiah. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, it's, this is the Father's will. And so John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, the Son of God, right? And he comes out of the water, and you've got this crazy scene where it says this voice from heaven speaks out and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And, you know, something like a dove comes down on Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And this incredible scene takes place all because that of John the Baptist and his preparation for Jesus. It's John the Baptist, really important guy. We get to Matthew 11, and it's been a little while now after this scene takes place. Jesus is now pretty famous, and miracles are happening all over the place. Thousands of people are gathering, and all this stuff's happening. Well, in the meantime, John the Baptist, who likes to pick a fight, he goes to Herod, who's the king of Israel at the time. He's really just a proxy king underneath the Roman Empire, but he's the king, and he goes to Herod because Herod was living an immoral life. And he goes to his court and he starts to shout really to everyone who will listen about how bad King Herod is. So what happens? King Herod has him thrown in prison. And he's been in prison now for quite a long time. Things aren't good for John the Baptist. He's in prison. He's not being fed well. He's being beaten and tortured. And something begins to happen inside him. He becomes discouraged. He's hearing about all the things that is happening outside of the prison. He's hearing about Jesus and all the stuff that he's doing and the miracles that are happening and the crowds that are gathering. And John the Baptist begins to wonder, why am I in prison if he's the Messiah? You know, again, I've said this many times when I've taught that the Jews believed that a Messiah was going to come to rescue them in a very earthly, physical sense, meaning that he would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and he would set up this new government and he would reign over the whole earth. And, and really what they, what they thought was there would be this justice in this literal sense where the Romans would be wiped out and they'd be all set free. And so you have the literal opposite happening in John the Baptist's life. He's in prison. And Jesus, the Messiah, whom he's declared to be the Messiah, is out there doing miracles, but yet he hasn't set him free. Jesus literally says, I've come to set the captives free. That scripture has already happened. And John the Baptist is in prison. And he begins to wonder, where, where's Jesus at in all this? I think this happens in our lives, doesn't it? We find ourselves in this place where it feels the opposite of what Jesus declared. It feels the opposite of what 
promises maybe we've read in Scripture. It almost it feels like we're in this prison and we begin to wonder, where is Jesus in the midst of this? And something can easily happen to all of us, and it happens even here to John the Baptist, and we'll read it now. Verse 1, chapter 11, it says, When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. So he's out doing his, his thing. It says, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Now let's read between the lines a little bit. He's declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And now he's saying, are you the Messiah? Or should I look for someone else? I mean, think about it. It's like, hello? You, you said you came to set the captives free. Now I'm in prison. I'm starting to wonder if you're the Messiah. And maybe my message will just remind you that you are and I'm still here in prison. Sometimes we act like that in prayer, don't we? I do. I start to pray things about our lives and over my life, and sometimes I struggle with prayer, right? Like just being honest with how prayer works. If someone tells you how prayer works, I'm sorry, they don't know how it works. I know this. If I pray, something can happen. If I don't, it probably won't. And so there's this idea, though, that prayer seems to move things, but then sometimes I feel like I'm trying to remind Jesus of something he already knows. Your kids ever do that to you? My kids do it all the time. Isaac, like, has to be early for everything. Like, he has bridge on Thursday night, so this was the kickoff week for bridge. Bridge starts at 6. At 4 o'clock, he starts. Dad, bridge is at 6. We should go. Like, it's two hours before. There's nobody even there. Yeah, but, Dad, you can, you can let us in. I'm not going to sit in the dark for two hours. And literally, for, like, every three to five minutes, he reminds me, Bridges at six, Dad. Bridges at six. I'm like, I know. And I will bring you. Now I'm going to bring you late on purpose. Now, Jesus doesn't do that. That's just me, okay? But don't we feel that way sometimes? There's this, there's this, cosmic world happening that we can't possibly understand. And, and prayer sometimes feels like me being Isaac to Jesus. Hey, don't forget me. Don't forget me. I'm right over here, and, and I really need this thing that you need to do for me. And can you do this on the time that I want you to do it? And Jesus is like, that's two hours early. You're crazy. And sometimes it feels like he's ignoring us, but the reality is we can't possibly conceive the way this whole thing works. And I don't like that just as much as you don't. I want to understand. I want to see the whole picture, but I know I can't. And it brings us back to this same old place of saying, do I trust in Jesus' goodness or not? And it'd be easy to say that if at five minutes to six, Jesus always brought us on time. But it doesn't always happen. In fact, sometimes we pray and the thing we pray for doesn't ever take place. 
the opposite happens. The thing you pray that doesn't happen does happen. And what we see here with John the Baptist is this very story. So he asks, are you the Messiah or, or should we look for someone else? And Jesus told them, so he tell, this is Jesus now answering the messengers. He says, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. So he's reminding John, haven't you seen me work? Haven't you heard about the goodness that I'm bringing? The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. I think sometimes this is the answer we need. We're asking God, where are you at in the midst of this? And, and we begin to question, honestly, for me, it's, it was an almost instant, God, are you really good? Is this really the story I have to live again? I, I made a statement, I'm sorry, I'm using you, Bruce, because you helped me this week, but I made a statement in our staff meeting. I said, man, I would just like to win a couple. And Bruce said, you do. And I was like, you're right. Because the reality is, if we begin to look at our lives realistically, and why we're all sitting here in this room, even today, or listening online, Jesus has done one good thing after the other that has brought us to this place. It doesn't mean that there aren't hard things in the midst of those good things, but the reality is his goodness far outweighs what the enemy has done in our lives. And sometimes we need that corrective reminder. Jesus basically is correcting him. He says, you've heard, you've seen, you know what I've done. But then he makes this statement at the end of it. He says, and tell him. Jesus saying this to the disciples of John the Baptist. He says, and tell him. And I'm going to read this. Well, I'll read it here. It says, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. The ESV says this, blessed is he who is not offended by me. Honestly, this is probably the first thing that came to my mind last week when we began to go through the stuff that we did this last week. I, this scripture hit me. I didn't read it. It just was there. I've read it many times before. I, blessed is he who's not offended by me. I'll tell you what, I don't like that answer. Like that's Jesus' response to John the Baptist in prison. And sometimes that's his response even to the hardships we're going through. He says, blessed are you if you're not offended by me. You know what that means? There's going to be opportunity for you to be offended by him. Things are going to happen in our lives and in our world that don't make sense and don't add up to the whole picture that we think we can see, but the reality is we can't see. And so there's this place where we have to just try to hold our hands open and say, okay, Jesus, I'm not going to be offended by you. I began to pray every morning after this happening, Jesus, I will not be offended by you. Going back to my confessions message, I'm not going to voice that I'm angry in disillusion, instead I'm going to voice that I am not offended and that Jesus is still good. Even if my emotions don't want me to do that. Blessed is he who's not offended by me. This word offended, it's in your notes there. It says tripped up. 
to stumble or fallen away from the right path. I, I like the picture of that, that offense is this idea of something that can trip you up. I think every one of us have experienced something that trips us up, right? Something that causes you to stumble just a little bit. But here's the thing with being tripped up or stumbling. You don't have to stay fallen down. You get back up. You don't stay fallen off the path. It says fallen from the right path. Now there's this choice, right? We get frustrated, we get hurt, or we get this disillusioned mindset. And if we hold on to that, it means that we've actually become offended. And then we have this choice. Am I going to just fall down for a moment, which is totally okay, and get back up and get back on the right path and choose to trust in Jesus? Or am I going to now choose a totally different path? A path of offense. A path where I begin to recite the things that I don't think are true about God anymore. Or we begin to confess things over our life that are the opposite of what God speaks over our lives. And so we actually kind of sway off of his path. And it doesn't have to look like this whole idea of running away from God, but it can simply be a path that veers us away from knowing who God really is. And we might still be Christian, and we might like God in some ways, but we start to have this widening path, and before we know it, we're so far away from who he is, we don't know him anymore. And at that point, it doesn't take much. But I think it often starts at this place of offense a place of being tripped up and stumbling over a million different things can cause it. Will we choose to live in a place of offense or will we step beyond it? And this is what Jesus is challenging John the Baptist in this moment. He's like, yeah, you're in prison. I mean, I, I think it would have been nice if Jesus was like, yeah, I'm on my way. I'm going to blast those doors open. I mean... We see the story of Lazarus, right? It's, it's almost similar in some ways. You've got Lazarus who's sick and he dies. And Jesus doesn't come on time, but he still comes a, a little bit later. And then he raises him from the dead and it's super amazing. This story doesn't end that way. This story ends with John the Baptist's head on a plate. Served at a party. And Jesus' last words to him were blessed is he who's not offended by me. If we want to know Jesus, if we really want to know God, we're going to have to walk through a place where you have an opportunity to be offended and then to walk down a different path or to choose to get back up from that place where you've stumbled. This is why I, my message is called um, offense and endurance because I really believe that if we want the answer to how we get over offense, it's simply this, endure it. You know, my wife, I've, I've shared it, you guys all know, she's a, she's a runner, she loves to run. She hasn't run as far a distance in the last couple of years as she used to, but, you know, she's run 50 milers and 70 milers. She loves this ultra running idea, and I've never even understood it. Like, I go to the events, and I eat donuts, and, you know, I cheer her on every 8 or 10 miles, and, and I'm just like, this is insane. But it always amazes me what humans are capable of when they put their mind to it. 
And so I see her in this, this idea of running. And, and I remember when, when she ran the first 50-miler that she did, um, someone asked me, do you really think she can do that? I said, yeah. I said, if her legs break, her brain's going to come out of her head and drag her across the finish line. Because I knew it wasn't really about a physical thing at that point. It was 100% a mindset to endure what she was going through. I mean, it was, it was disturbing, honestly. She lost half her toenails. I mean, it was the things that she, her, her knee was messed up for two years after the first one. And she actually went to a trainer after that to teach her to run right because she ran with this weird, like, I don't know, not a, not a straight run, you know. And so her knee got messed up after repetitively running for 12 hours. And so she learned to adjust those things. But there was this reality that the only way to finish that was endurance. Endurance in the, in the sport world, it's kind of like this, ooh, that's cool thing. But the reality is endurance in our actual real lives, it's, we, we don't like it. Because endurance means you have to endure something that is in opposition to you. Something that's actually opposing you. A force that's coming against you. And endurance means will you stand in the midst of something that's hard and, and coming against you. And so my answer to offense in the Christian life is simply will you choose to endure it for a time. Whatever the thing is you're going through. And Jesus makes all these statements about endurance. Isaiah or Hebrews uh, 12, 2, it says, actually, we'll turn there. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 12. I'm going to read more than I wrote down there. Hebrews 12, 2. Actually, I'll start in verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Sound familiar? It's the same Greek word here. Especially the things that offend us. Especially those that cause us to stumble. It says, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this. By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. We know that Jesus going to the cross was not some easy thing. We see this scene where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating blood, it says. It says in one scripture that he was crushed with grief to the point of death. You ever been crushed with grief? I think I have. Crushed with grief to the point of death. I, I reminded me of this scripture in Isaiah 53 this week. And it was describing Jesus, this coming Messiah, Isaiah 53. It says, he was a man of deep sorrows, acquainted with grief. Wow, what a terrible description. This is Jesus we're talking about. He's not exempt from sorrows. He's not exempt from offense. He's not exempt from grief. But what he does is in the midst of a life full of sorrow and grief, he shows us how to live differently. 
He shows us how to stand in the midst of that, endure things. And so it says, for the sake of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. I'm telling you, there's joy on the other side of your offense. I'm declaring that for myself today. I don't necessarily feel it yet. But there's joy on the other side of the difficulties in my life. There's joy on the other side of the things that have tripped you up in your life. But there's this place where you have to choose to endure. You have to stand up. You have to get up from stumbling. And you have to keep heading in the right direction. Matthew 24, 13, it says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying all this stuff about the coming world and the end of the age and all this stuff that's happening. And you can almost sum up this one thought. He says, the one who endures to the end. Endurance. James 1, 2 through 4, it's not in your notes, but I stuck it down there. It says, Actually, maybe you have it up there for me. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Sometimes I read this stuff and I'm like, you people are delusional writing this stuff. I mean, I'm talking to Paul, right? But consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. Just think about that. It has a chance to grow, but you have the choice to let it grow or not. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. I've read this scripture so many times in my life and always thought, that's crazy scripture. To try to sum up being perfect and complete, in one word, and the word choice is endurance. That if endurance could fully develop in us, meaning that we don't let an offense trip us up, that if we could just endure through certain things in life, scriptures are telling us that we'd be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What offense is in your life? What things have happened in your world that have made you offended with God? What discouragements and disillusionments have come that have made you feel like God isn't who people have said he is, or maybe God isn't what the scriptures say he is? What, what things have begun to lie to you about who Jesus is that have caused this offense way of life? that have caused us to be distant from knowing God experientially in the way he desires. I think every one of us has an opportunity this morning. It's not an opportunity that makes us feel like so excited. <laughs> like, oh, yay. Endurance. Hard things. But yet the scripture says, we'll be perfect and complete. Galatians 6, 9 says, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. 
telling you endurance is the way to blessing. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. If we can step over offense and we can see the blessing God has for us, if we can just head in the right direction, the blessing of God will come in our life. It doesn't always look like what we expect it to, but it's the blessing of God nonetheless. If you go through the Beatitudes, the blessed scriptures, right? In Matthew 5, it's it's not these like big wow things. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's this, there's almost this kind of lesser thinking in this. It's this kind of upside down world where if we just recognize that we need Jesus in our life, if we recognize we can't do it all on our own, but yet we have this endurance attitude, then the blessing of God will come over our lives. If we step out of offense, if we endure the hard things, the blessing and joy of God awaits us. I believe 2024 is going to be a joyful year. A year filled with joy. Even in the midst of my own tears, I am going to declare this until I sound crazy. God wants us to live in a place of joy, a place of blessing. And no matter what, and in fact, this whole thing that's happened with us, I don't know how to chalk up why or how or all the things, but I tell you this, all it's done is made me angry at the enemy. All it's done is made me almost a little more stiff-necked towards the things that think they can take us out of this world. I will not be done in by this. Maybe there's a little stubbornness in that endurance, but I think that's good. Why don't we stand this morning? I believe God wants every one of us to leave a place of offense today. He wants every one of us to step onto this road where we're enduring the things of this world, but we're going to be filled with joy. We're going to be blessed by his favor over us. You know, this morning we have communion. So just maybe the folks that are going to be passing that out could uh, could come forward. There's some in the back. I think this tall table to my left is gluten-free, just so you know. But I want to pray for you, and then you can come forward and, and get the elements, and then Justin's going to finish up with communion at the end. But I'm going to pray that this morning breaks a changing moment for many of us where we will just make a hard stance choice to not live in a place of offense, to trust in Jesus, to endure hard things, but to receive the blessing of God in the process. God, I thank you for everyone in this room and everyone watching online. God, I thank you that you are with us in the midst of things. God, you are with us even in this place today. God, no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter what circumstances we're engulfed in today, you're with us. But God, we don't want to be Christians who just go to church and know you somewhat or know about you. God, we want to know you experientially. We want to know you closely. God, we don't want anything to come between us. And so Jesus, today, collectively as a church, we lay down offense. God, we lay it at your altar even as we come forward to get communion today. God, we lay it down and just say, I will not be offended by you. 
I want to receive your blessing. I don't want to grow weary in doing what is good. So, Father, we ask right now that your Holy Spirit move in this place. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.